I think that one of the probably the most dominant question after choosing to write my book is how did you not know mm-hmm. that you were black? And I think that it's so easy to assume that children can articulate things for which they have no language for Mm -hmm. from an adult perspective. And so what I can say to those who ask is I knew that I was different. It's super um, evident. Uh, Everybody in my siblings were blonde haired, blue eyed. Um, The man on my birth certificate was blonde haired, blue eyed. My mother is brown haired, but green eyed, very pale skin. And so, of course, there's you can only look you only have to look once to see that I would not fit into that um, a physical appearance model for which that you can easily look at any family picture that I am in and choose the one that doesn't belong. And so I did not not want to live my life um, or be in my life. I just wanted um, not to be seen for the differences. Welcome to the Small Talk Big Names podcast with your host, Niger. The show where I introduce you to big names, big ideas, and big lessons in the amount of time it will take you to get through Atlanta traffic. Guests will share with us their detours in life and decisions to follow roads less traveled. So if you have a moment, let's get into some small talk. Hi, everyone, and welcome back again. Today, you are in for a treat because I'm sitting here with Naima. And if you've not heard, Raise as a Lie is a must read. Take your prejudice out of it, right? Because I think the cover says something and prepares you for a conversation. Um, Take that out of it. Just open yourself up to the possibilities that no, she's not she's not a unicorn. I'm sure there are many young men and women who have a very similar story, but of course not told in the same way, who have similar experiences, but again, not experienced in the same way. And this is really just an opportunity for you to put yourself aside and introduce yourself to a world that's, that's real, right? But before we go into that, why don't you introduce yourself? I am Dr. Naima Olatunji. I am a doctor of chiropractic and... I am a mom, um, a business owner, an entrepreneur, podcast host. I am somebody's daughter and sister, and I'm a person who has a mission to leave people and things better than how I found them. And at the ripe young age of 51, I find myself now being called to speak a truth, my truth, that was not present before, meaning it wasn't necessary for me to speak that truth. What was necessary for me was to assimilate. And that Mm. was something that I uh, I think that I, I I knew from my earliest memories, mm-hmm. and, you know, in family, like, how do you make yourself small so that you don't attract more attention to mm-hmm. yourself? Mm-hmm. And 
And I get really excited now about living out loud. So what I hear is that you were in a position where you were constantly looking to shrink yourself for, for a host of reasons. Um, that's, that's really strong. When did you realize, at what age would you say that that became a part of your day-to-day? How can I minimize my presence? My earliest memories um, are three. When I was three years old and I... And they weren't pleasant. Um, the the most prevalent memories um, at that age are of my older sister, who's seven years my senior, and she had a lot to work out. Um, I'm a believer in uh, reincarnation, and I believe that this time around for her, she does she has a lot that she. Uh, that she needs to work out. and But I didn't know at three mm-hmm. that I was that that whipping post for her. Um, she, she was very, very angry. And I wouldn't have said that either. I didn't have the language for that. But what I did know is that I loved and adored her and I wanted her to accept me and I wanted her to um, to just love me. And instead she saw my difference as the inroads to venting some of her own pent up frustrations Mm -hmm. and anger and hurt and the things that, you know, that she was dealing with. And so from the earliest memories, um, of being around three and trying to find ways for which that I could, be present yet invisible. Like I didn't want to not be in my life, um, but I did. I did not. I didn't want to attract uh, attention, and I didn't want to be recognized for differences. So what I heard is she exploited your special, right? It's like your idol saw that and attacked it, and because you didn't have words for it all you can do is sit there and take it and then also start to take fault with it because this is your idol, right? So maybe, maybe there is something not wrong, but not right. But then in other spaces, it's don't pay attention over here. That's, that's tough. That that's tough. But first of all, thank you for sharing. Um, Thank you for sharing a story Thank you for going through at the ripe age of 51, the process of healing, because this is healing for others as well. I'm sure that you've heard that, right? Um, Because this exact scenario presents itself in a multitude of ways in multiple households. There aren't any unicorns anymore. But before we go deeper, got to give a shout out to Nick Nelson, because Nick introduced, Nick was like, listen, you got, listen, you got, listen, and you listen, if you ever get a call from Nick, and he starts with listen, 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 just, just listen, Lord, he's not going to stop. He's not. He's, he's not. not. Gonna stop. He's absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> For the last brand time. Yes. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Nick, Nick Nelson is probably one of the most incredible humans uh, that I know, and I truly, truly appreciate his brand of friendship. Yes. And how he shows up. Yeah in a space and the amount of joy that uh that just exudes from yeah. him in a very real way and it's it's definitely authentic yes. 
Um, and yes. you can't have Nick without Monica. No. That, that listen, that, that, Monica's type of support, Monica is his executive assistant. Her type of support is beyond I'm his assistant. Like, she's literally his partner. Right. Monica can yell at Nick. Yeah. And Nick will stop talking. Right. And Monica I'm yells at me, listen. and I'm like, I'm here. Present. Just accounted for. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I want to shout out before we go any deeper, you have set the bar high for on premise, on site, on site recordings. Presentations. Okay. Presentation yes. is everything, guys. Here at the Small Talk Big Names Podcast, it's very important that if you choose the space, you know, it's okay to have to have some refreshments. Um, most of you know that I I don't know anything about wine. I drink wine like I drink water, right? Which, but then the I have the counter effect to water, so I don't drink as much <laughs> wine. But but your presentation, I really appreciate it, and I appreciate you taking time in your personal space to make this conversation happen. Yeah, absolutely. You gotta. I, I think that the one thing that um, that I one really great thing that I learned from my mom was. Um, you know, the saying, how you do anything is how you do everything. And when you choose to have people in your space, whatever that looks like, whether it's a business, an office, like the smallest things, the energy that you put into it creates the intentionality for what you want out of it. Yeah. Right. And, and if I want, um, for there to be this, you know, great experience, um, then I'm going to make sure that we at least set the foundation. At the very least. Yeah. And my mother was Italian, y'all. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to feed you. (laughs) Now I'm old enough when my kids, uh, are out of the house. I am an official empty nester. Whoop, whoop. Shout out to the empty nesters. Shout out to all of this beautiful tribe that I have just become a member. Um, I'm not going to cook it anymore. It won't come from my hands. But honey, I can order and pick out with the best of them. Yeah, you're like a, what is it, an Uber Eats guru at this point. And there are some people who are really good at Uber Eats. Yeah. I actually, so I don't love Uber Eats. Um, sorry, Uber. Um, just be, It's too limiting for me because I'm the type of person who's going to come to a restaurant and order off of the menu every single damn time. So, um, so I can't do that, but I do, and I'm super picky. So, um, let me just props to Trader Joe's cause I love them. Been shopping there for almost 30 years. Both of my boys work there. So I got a family discount. Mm. So they that is a unsolicited sponsored uh, commercial. You all know we have commercials on the show. I gotta say, that's the first one we didn't pull off of YouTube, and just really, really appreciate you for that. So Trader Joe's, holla at us. Listen, do it, or it will not make it into the cut. Um, your hero exploited you, yeah, in a way that a lot of us have experienced, right? So our mentors, to a certain extent. There's a show called Damages, right? Glenn close yeah with patty patty that's patty patty right and you and you and you were ellen yeah 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 oh i like ellen yeah but do you see where i'm going from coming from with that it's but then at some point ellen caught on and was like let's do this let's dance and became a junior patty to where patty couldn't even control ellen yep Would you say that that was your experience? So, yes. So I'm trying not to give a lot of, I want people, I want people to, I I want people to go out and get the book. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So the name, the title is provocative so that you will want to buy the book. The cover of the book is provocative so that you will actually put cash behind it and purchase the book. And the story, I think, is unique enough for which that I, of course, I'm the author, but I, I think that it is a unique story that, that needs to be told, right? Um, and... And so in, in saying that, I think that I think that what happens is is that when you have a, a, a very dominant person in your life for which um, that she was uh, my sister's name is Michelle, uh, she definitely played that sort of patty role where um, you know, Patty had a bunch of stuff she had to work out in she her did. own life and mm-hmm. her own traumas. And, you know, there's several scenes in that series for which that they sort of delve into her own issues. And and I think that at some point, it wasn't until I got to University of Southern California, though, when I, um, when I was a college student, I think my up until, because I was a transfer student, so that's like 19-ish, um, it, it wasn't until then where I truly decided, like I made a conscious decision that I'm no longer going to continue to apologize for my existence. Now, that still went on for some time later, right? We're still, we're always a work in progress. But that was the, the moment for which that I was like, you know what I'm done doing? I'm done apologizing for me being here in, in this space. And I don't think this is my thoughts on sort of how we show up in the world. I don't think that us making ourselves small, nor that us apologizing truly gives and lends the bully personality that's in your life, that character gives them the thing that they're seeking anyways, like truly like Michelle needed some things in her life. And, and, um, and because she decided that, you know, this was a good outlet does not mean that she ever truly was vindicated. It doesn't mean that she went on her own healing, you know, mission and, and decided, I'm going to become a better version of myself. Oh, that chick just got, she dug deeper in, right? Um, and, and so I don't think that I would have done her any favors um, anyways. But, you know, I mean, we're all here to work things out. We've all got stories, right? Yeah. Well, I think that this is a unique story now. It, it took me many years to even think that. What I believe and know to be true is that we've all got these really incredible, unique stories. And I think that that's what I love about the fact that I chose to actually write this book because now I get to have these really amazing conversations with other people who are sharing their stories and they're talking about the things that truly moved them and obstacles that they came up against. And I feel inspired hearing about, you know, some of the incredible, I think, feats in spite of, you know, that these people just persevere persevere like that's so incredible to me do you feel like your your life up to 51 
whatever you were protecting, mm. whatever, and I'm not going to say secrets, but I'm going to say secrets, yeah. experiences you were kind of keeping to yourself because you wanted to preserve who you've become. Because I, to add to that, I think that people do get concerned that if you really know who I am, I'm no longer your superhero or I'm no longer special or I'm no longer bigger than life to you. So I will answer that in three different ways. Yeah. One, I think that when people meet and know you in one, one, one lane that you, that you play, one role that you play in your life, um, sometimes it's a little bit different to even imagine them seeing you in a different light um, when you play a different role, right? I, I think, especially when it comes to on a professional level. And there, there were so many moments in taking this journey that the, and the people who were, you know, in my support tribe will absolutely tell you that they probably decided to stop answering my calls because I was constantly asking, do I tell this? Do I really tell this? What if I just didn't do it? What if I know that I already agreed and, you know, got this publishing of it, but what if I just don't do it, right? And then this other part of me, sort of the third way that I, I see this, you know, questions very dynamic to me in that there was a part of me that knew that this was necessary. Mm -hmm. So we talked earlier um, before, I am, I can be extremely superficial. Um, I am a, a person for which that I am going to present in a way that what you see is what I want you to believe. Mm -hmm. And having this opportunity to tell my story from a very raw and unfiltered perspective was terrifying to me because that does not bode well with, we have a very professional, a darn near placard sort of smile that's on the face. Like if somebody asks me how I am, I have trained myself to say amazing to the point where I can hear myself answering somebody and then listening and like, oh, wow, I'm not actually amazing. And I think that none of us are 100% of the time, but there are so many times that I am the furthest from amazing, but that's what I'm going to say. One, because I believe that words um, have energy, of course that they do, and we are energy, and I certainly want to uplift myself and the person that I'm talking to. So I'm always going to veer on the side of how can we you know, give positivity and bring optimism to any moment. However, when you decide that you're going to tell a story in a way for which that, as my therapist would say, like, you, you don't have to tell. Like, I, I, there, were, there were sessions, because every Friday, shout out to Ernest Eglin, thank God for him. Um, there were, I saw him every single Friday, 
during this process. And there were sessions that I would walk in like a toddler and say, I'm not writing about it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say it. And he was like, you don't have to. Nobody is telling you that you have to write this particular story. And there was this moment for which that there were some really difficult chapters that needed to be told in order to make the story make sense. And I had to work through them. And at one point, um, there's this point for which that I don't want to write the story. I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it. And I do one of my toddler tantrums and he ultimately said, you don't have to do this work. You don't have to dig through the muck and the mire. But I thought you wanted to heal. I thought you came here to shed the things that are no longer serving you. And that was exactly what I needed to hear. My personality said, fuck, fine. And then I sat down and we got into it. I think that not everybody being challenged in that way works for them. But if you challenge me, then I'm going to do a little bit of introspection and then I'm going to come into the space for which that I know that the work um, has to be done. And so ultimately, I think that at 49, when I decided to tell my story, what I had to decide over and over and over again is if I'm going to tell it, then I'm going to tell it all. And I'm not going to leave it on the table and wonder if I would have, what would have been different. There is a cost, right? There is a cost. And you're either going to pay for it now or you're going to pay for it later with compounded interest. Mm. Let's talk about that on the other side. Um, before we went on break, you know, your 
is it was it your therapist that you're referring to yes or you're writing Ernest. Ernest Ernest is the man Ernest is so the man because I love what he did is he 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 brought you to a decision point yeah where it's like sure you don't have to but then you can't have it on both sides right you can't say I'm not gonna do it but then also say why am I not healing yeah I feel like that's what he was saying you know, the, the interesting thing is that, uh, so I had this whole mental, emotional, just complete collapse, um, which was necessary. And you can always look at things later, right? You can always look at things later and with this great sort of hindsight perspective and say, this is why uh, this experience was necessary. But what I will tell you is that what I assumed as being 49, that I had done all the hard work, um, you know, buried the parents, survived the divorce, went back to grad school with three kids and, um, you know, got all the no's from, you know, trying to become a business owner and nobody wanting to give me a lease and, and not knowing how that, you know, I was going to support my kids and, all the things that I hadn't anticipated, you know, becoming a single mom. And I had, I had survived all of those. So what I believed was that because I had not only persevered through, you know, these life events, what I, I thought was that I had somehow arrived. Mm -hmm. And what I had decided was that 49 going into 50 meant that, this arrival meant that I had achieved and attained this level of maturity mm -hmm. for which that only experience and reflection that you gain and you garner this wisdom from that it was all going to be, I don't know, easy street. Like I was, I was just going to become more sophisticated. Um, and instead I'm on my knees begging some man not to walk out the door and to know me is to know that I have an ego that's super big and that I, that I would never be that person. And yet that was what was happening. And, and so in understanding that because I had this whole moment for which that I never saw coming that when you are a doer, mm -hmm. when you have embodied this, you know, for me, it was the strong black woman image in this persona. And what I believed growing up, what I saw are very strong uh, female roles in my life. And they always had the answer. And what I believed was that if about myself, I had decided that if I didn't have the answer, if I couldn't fix it, then there was certainly something wrong with me. And so at 49, and I have this whole emotional collapse, and I can't seem to get myself up. And I can't seem to, you know, to figure out how I'm gonna, you know, put one foot in front of the other and sort of put these pieces back in my life that in this moment of uncertainty, I did, I was very clear that I needed to find a professional. And so what I know to be true is having that experience allowed 
me to be vulnerable with myself first. Look in the mirror and say, Naima, you don't have the answer, but you can find somebody that can help you dig through this so that you can find some clarity on the other side. And so for the people in the space, in the mental health space, like, I, there's not enough respect that I can pay for people who are committed to doing the work and helping another human being find their greatest potential within, right? Because nothing is outside of ourselves. And so Ernest was was that person for me. He was absolutely an anchor and a lighthouse simultaneously re-reminding me of who I was when I had forgotten Mm -hmm. and in the way that only a professional can Mm -hmm. because you can exhaust your family and friends. I have uh, just a few people that I entrust with all of the just Just the mess and dirty, right? Mm -hmm. And... What I could not continue to do was to keep taking withdrawals from those relationships, right? Because they could only give what they could give. And then their level, because they are not, you know, professional mental health, uh, mental health professionals. So they could only give me what they could give me. And then when their skill set came to an end, then I knew that I needed additional hand holding. I needed somebody to stand in the space and re-remind me of what I could achieve and attain and that that it could be so much better than what I was currently experiencing. Mm -hmm. And just being willing to be like, to your example earlier, like dropping the phone and not having a complete conniption fit because iPhones, y'all, those doggone things are like $1,300, right? And so what I believed it was that everything was so fragile and so expensive that I didn't I that I couldn't be shattered, right? Like I had spent all of this time investing in who I had become and you know <laughs> ain't nobody got time yeah. to be on a in a puddle on the floor. Mm-hmm. You know, so as you as you were talking, I was thinking about when I want to ask you the question, what was the cost? Right. And because I, I think a lot of us get caught up in just like you said, I'd accomplished or completed or began or expired so many things, so many interests of mine, so many opportunities that were laid at my feet. So in my head, I calculated as winning. And how do you win? I have the tools. I don't have the baggage, right? I I have the space to focus in on this. And I think what that does is it gives you this false sense of security in that what you need to work through must obviously have just worked itself out or it didn't exist. It wasn't real. And someone might say that it cost you 49 years to get to where you are. What would you say the cost was to get to 49 I love the word humility, right? Like this idea that you you can have all of these experiences, but at the end of the day, like you have to be willing 
to just be super humble. And, um, and I think for me, it was the persona that I had built up, the story I had been telling myself, the story I had been telling other people, and the willingness to lift up the rug. So before you came, I cleaned up. I'm normally clean, but I cleaned up. I cleaned even more. And <laughs> there's a there's a rug at the front door that's got a bunch of dirt under it, y'all. I did it. Because I was like, I have a dog. And the, she was standing like on the rug, and I couldn't get it up. This is my excuse. Yes, I'm blaming the dog. I am. And I just, I covered it up. And I remember... In therapy, Ernest saying, like, when, when are you going to be willing to dig all of the shit that you've been shoving under there? When are you going to, when are you going to do it? Because I kept saying, no, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about that because I'm a bit of a control freak, y'all. So what I know is that you do have to to take all this stuff out and you, you do have to look at it, but you have to be willing to say that things aren't what I thought that they were because I had also made decisions when I was very young. I had made decisions about myself and about life and I had these lenses that we all do. We all make things mean things. Um, and the decisions that I had made at a very early age was that I did not deserve the things that I had. Mm. And that what I did not realize, and I would not have told you this, because remember, I was all evolved at 49. I would not have said to you, Niger, I don't feel worthy of the things that I have. I don't feel worthy of my success. I don't feel worthy that I have a business and that I'm a whole doctor. It wasn't until all of that was questioned and I had to go back and relook at, I had made these decisions as a very young person and subconsciously I was living through that, those meanings from seven years old, but now I'm 49 and I, I would not have made those connections had I not had a complete meltdown, right? Had I not collapsed, then there was n then there would have been nothing to look at because I would have continued to do the thing that I had been doing my whole life was you never let them see you sweat. You never cry in front of the people. You put one foot in front of the other. You act as if, right? Tell a lie long enough and it becomes the truth. Like I like, professional level like I could compete at Olympic level mm -hmm. and what I just decided was that that cost was too much right like sometimes we erect these walls and for me you know certainly the walls have been erected around my heart in in particular right um and <laughs> and and one when it was time to sort of start removing those bricks and actually looking at what I had erected was that the cost would have been too great to continue. And I just wasn't willing to do that. Yeah. You were on autopilot. Yep. Since seven. Yeah. Probably since three. Yep. Wow. 
who did you who did you learn that from that's that's learned right yeah where it's just like you said so prior prior to going live we talked about going to the symphony and how if anyone sees you at the symphony it's like she knows everything about it you know you're like the you're like the swan right and we all put that we all put that face on especially in these like snooty you know highbrow spaces we all put that on we're the swan right no one can see that we're just kicking our heart out underwater they just see us gliding but they have no idea of the work that we're putting in. It's you, 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 you had intentional representation. And there are a lot of people who try to do that um, because they don't want to have the conversation about that thing that hurts. They don't want that thing that's happening, that real thing that's happening to them to be added to, to, um, to someone else's judgment of them. Who did you get that from? Who did you learn? Because it's a skill. And it sounds like you're still kind of figuring, you're still kind of tinkering with the settings. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's still very present for you, but you're also able to recognize when it goes beyond that safe space. Now we're going into territory that's taking me back to seven. Where'd you get that? So two things. One, um, spoiler alert, um, the, the I think that the book has a happy ending. I... The very last thing that I write in my book is one statement. I am a work in progress because I think that we all are. And to that degree, what I recognize. Oh, so let me just say one quick thing about writing the book. What I thought, <laughs> what I charged my therapist with was that I was going to be this fixed product at the end of writing this book. So That's I was ambitious. Yeah. 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 A hundred percent. And and that's how I get down, right? Like that's how I, love I and then he reminded me that I was doing it again. <laughs> I love like, you, Ernest. Ernest. <laughs> so I, um, and he did not appreciate, you're right, because people who know you the best will recognize when you start in the pattern that becomes so familiar to you. And, um, and so what I had found was that I thought that I was going to be this, like, all done finished product at the end of writing this book. And then I get to the end of the book. <laughs> so the book is a memoir, but it's not my whole life, right? It, it ends at um, age 24. And, and so what I realized though was in in telling the story was that there was so much more work to be done hence Ernest I'll see you next Friday um so I'm 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 still doing the work I'm I'm still figuring it out but to your point yes I can recognize it I'm much more aware of those moments um when when that's necessary um to to just be really honest with yourself. And I'm more willing to be honest with your um, with myself. So to answer your question, who did I learn it from? Um, very old patterns. My grandmother on my mother's side, so I was raised, my mother is Italian, um, and I was raised um, m- primarily on uh, with her side of the family. And Italians do denial well, y'all. Mm-hmm. If y'all, if, if you don't know, you and know Catholics. now. Um, and yes, and I was raised Italian Catholic. Boom. So you know, I got a double whammy. Um, and so my grandmother 
when my mother, who is the oldest of six children, uh, had a nervous breakdown, like complete nervous breakdown, um, became completely incapacitated. And I write a little bit about this um, in the book to sort of give some context to how my mother became the woman she did. And nobody ever talked about it. My grandmother went to bed when my mother was 11 and didn't leave her bedroom for months. And my mother, as the oldest child and the oldest female child, it was her responsibility to then take on her mother's role. She assumed the role. A hundred percent. And the expectation was, is that she would do exactly that. And she would never question it. There was no question. There was no, there was no, well, I don't want to. Mm -hmm. Right. And certainly, you know, we live in an era for which that nobody at this, in this moment would think like, oh, that's perfectly acceptable. Then an 11 year old child would then assume the responsibilities of all of the siblings, the right, like, um, all the household jobs and chores and all the things. And my mother did not question it. She just did what was expected of her. In, I think that each generation does a bit better to become a little bit more aware of and, you know, conscious about how that we are raising children to become, you know, these very sort of dynamic and multifunctional adults. And so my mom did quite a bit better when she was raising her children, but the expectation was still there that you as this human being walking around the planet, do not get to bleed on people who do not cut you. You do not get to vomit all of your emotional insecurities on other people. Instead, to use my grandmother's word, ain't no head shrink coming in this house and telling me about myself. And my mother, I don't think, had evolved much beyond that, meaning that she did not think that it was valuable to actually have a therapist, right? Because, you know, in my grandmother's generation, um, women who weren't able to perform all of their duties were just seen as weak and irresponsible. And that was not okay and not acceptable, you know, in the women in my, um, and my family. And so you just put one foot in front of the other. And so, yes, it's a learned behavior, but I also know that is, we still take on that, right? Like there's still so many conversations around being a strong black woman, right? And, you know, what that connotation means and, you know, how you show up in the world and, you know, are we then needing to, you know, dismantle that and start peeling back the layers of, you know, who we really are inside and not just this character caricature of, you know, these, you know, collection of personality traits, uh, um, but are we much more of dynamic human beings than that? Yeah. You know, it's so we borrow from people, we steal from people and we loan to people. Right. And then we give too, right. We always give, but we borrow, we steal, we loan. And what I mean by that is that if there, there are men and women in my life um, for which I will, I'll give you an example. My sister, my sister is an attorney. When we moved to the States, I would get 
laughed at or picked on because of our accents, right? And because of that, to avoid that, I would try to mimic my sister. Now, I always thought my sister spoke beautifully. She has a way with words that she just blows. She just blows Webster out of the, out of the water. Um, so I would start to mimic her the way she said things to the point where when people would call the house, that's when we had landlines, they didn't know who they were talking to. That's when I knew that it was working. And to this day, my sister will, will hear herself and she'll think that it's, that it's me talking, right? So I just really, I honed in on it and I, and I wanted to sound and speak like my sister. Um, that was intentional and it still is. Even when I talk to my sister today, I'm still picking up Hmm, I, I should say, maybe I have been saying it wrong the whole time. It sounds like that's what, that's, that's what you did. Because the op, there weren't other options presented to you. Right. Is your sister older than you? She is older. She's yeah. eight years older. Yeah. And, and, and I think that I, I, it sounds like that you admired your sister. Still do. I admired mm-hmm. my mother. Um, I admired my grandmother for the things that she endured and the grace for which that she walked around the world mm-hmm. um, caring. and Because that's there's a lot of strength in that. There is. Because you're carrying everything on your shoulders and saying, give me more because I'm not going to let you see. I'm not going to let you hear me say, I can't. Yes. Can't is like. You know, we take that for granted. Yes. But there's so there's so much there's so much that comes out of you being comfortable with saying, I can't do that. Yeah. It's scary. Yes. And you know, that the, as I was becoming um a little bit more experienced in my mothering, that no was a complete sentence. And not needing to apologize, not needing to um, to somehow validate that I had three children and I couldn't do the thing that somebody was asking because it was too much. And being okay with that mm-hmm. and, and finding a peace in... I can say no mm-hmm. to doing something, to accepting, to taking on some role, some task... Um, and not feeling like I was not worthy of the person's respect. I'm not a good friend. Not a good friend. What is that about? Yeah. 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 yeah I think that, you know, we, we um, I think that we put a lot um, on our friends. Like we, we should probably all be. But you know, but, but if you, but if you were to, to ask your friend, am I, am I not a good, do you think I'm not a good friend because I said no? Right. Especially if it's, no, I'm having, you know, um, the boys have a baseball game that day. I can't do it. Am I a bad friend? Your friend is like, hell no. I'd rather you tell me no instead of yes and then you don't show up or you don't, you don't show up. Right. Yeah. Um, But the funny thing with, with learning how to speak like my sister is that now I'm actually trying to learn how to speak like my mom. Right. From the Liberian side. So, so I'm traveling more back home and every, you know, if I'm there for more than two weeks, it's, I'm dreaming and, and Liberian English. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, When I'm around family, it's, it kicks right in. 
So now I'm trying to practice that even more. And it's the same with Creole, right? When I talk to my family, even though um, JP and I sent like my younger siblings, because I was in the Peace Corps. So we sent my younger siblings to school to learn English. I still am, every time I'm in contact, I'm speaking in Creole. Mm. And if and it's so funny, because now if I, if I don't know what the word is, they'll say, just say it in English. <laughs> mm. Yeah, now they're showing off. That's that show off we were right, talking about. Right, just say it in English. Just say it. I know. And it's like, <laughs> enough. Um, hey, listen, if you're just joining us, the Small Talk Big Names podcast, I'm here with Naima. God, there's so much to learn. But but I'm trying my best not to dig deep into it because I want people, I want people to not just purchase the book, but I want people to be genuinely interested and first learn about you in your own words and then come with the questions, right? So with that said, we have more to talk about, right? What's happened since 24? Mm. That's a big deal. What's yeah. happened since 24? And maybe some other topics that that we can go a little deeper in. Hey, don't go anywhere. Hi, and welcome back to Small Talk Big Names Podcast with your host, Snijer. If you're just joining, I'm here with Naima. Such a fascinating story, to say the least. Um, I'm trying to be very careful about giving it away, but I don't know that I, that I can't give it away because the conversation, it's, you put it in writing. Right. With most of my guests, I always say, you know, what you're doing now, it's like really great. It's cool. It's dot, dot, dot. It's viral. But I want to know who you were prior to. Um, this interview is unique in the sense that who you were prior to has already been stated. Right. Um, so I don't know that I can't get away, but I'm trying my best to. So audience members don't kill me. Just get the book. Race as a lie. Dot right. com. Dot com. Yeah. Find, find you on LinkedIn. Matter of fact, what are your socials? Uh, socials are on uh, IG, so Dr. Naima writes on uh, Instagram and uh, Facebook, and um, best place to find out all the newest happenings uh, is raisedasalie.com. Super, super excited because uh, we are rebranding, and so there is a drnaima.com coming, loading. So. Boom, you heard it here. First yes. premiere. You know how they do. We don't. We, listen, we, we need advertisements, please, so that we can get a real sound machine. Otherwise, I'll end up doing it. You're going to keep on repping. That's right. So let me ask you, provocative cover. How did you come to that? So I will say this. Um, when you are an indie author uh, like me, and you are a first-time indie author, um. I, I, there was an amazing program, Creator Institute, shout out to Eric Custer, professor at Georgetown University, who said yes to his dreams, and m created this, like, you know, builds it, feel the, feel the dreams, like he is creating, I think he's like a thousand authors now that would wow. not have been it, just absolutely incredible, phenomenal. If you are interested in writing a book, Turns out less than 2% of people who say that they're going to write a book 
actually write a book so you can imagine all of the other, you know, tens of thousands of people. So less than 2%. Um, and so it feels super dope to be in that, you know, um, in that, you know, statistic to have actually achieved that. Uh, major. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. Professor Eric Custer um, started a program, Creator Institute. And um, and so in that program, you know, I was able to then, you know, go through all the stages like they literally take your hand and they hold your hand through the entire process. So let me ask you, did you begin writing the book? Which came first, chicken or egg, right? Mm -hmm. Therapy or the Institute, the Creator's? Institute. Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, so therapy, definitely. Okay. So meltdown. Mm-hmm. All right. So full story. Full story right here. Mm-hmm. You heard it live. Um, beep, 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 meow. Fell in love and was feeling super invincible. Like, I, I want to do a thing. So I'm the type of person who signs up for hard shit. I just am. I've accepted it. Um, when I'm on like 5% incline um, on a hill and it's going on for a mile and I am questioning all my life choices, my mantra is I'm the type of person who signs up for hard things um, and I complete them. So having said that, I'm feeling all wonderful and refreshed and like, I think it's time to tell my story, but not from, I need therapy, tell my story, just because it's a unique story, little brown girl that grows up in an all white family, um, and is told that she is white, like it's, it's a unique story. So I decide I want to tell the the story, Mm -hmm. and I'm all in love. And then the man breaks my heart. And when in that shattering in that, like, I'm on the floor in a puddle and can't seem to get myself up. That's when I know that I will write this story, but not from a position of this is such a unique story. I'm going to write this story because there's something wrong here. And I need to figure out what's wrong. But how do I get there? And, And that was therapy for me. So in the assignments, the journaling, the, the, the outcomes from therapy comes the book. So that didn't, that didn't come first, right? The idea, but not the actual implementation. And then shout out to Morgan Wider, who is a stylist. She works with Nick Nelson. She is a friend of mine and she wrote a book, The Worthy Wardrobe. And I interviewed her on my podcast, and that led to me emceeing her book launch. And I had a blast. Like, it was super, super dope. And when I knew that I needed to figure out all the things um, that were happening in my head and, you know, sort of sort those things out through therapy... I decided that I would tell the story, but from a different perspective, not just from, oh, this little brown girl grows up in this all white family, you know, and she discovers who she is, the end. But like, what makes a person a person? What are the ideas, the foundation? Like, how do you then 
What are the decisions that you decide as an, a young person and how do they influence and, you know, um, your adult decision making and, and where you, how you show up in the world. And so that spurred me on to actually ask Morgan, but in like, that's really obscure, like asking for a friend, sort of like, I was so not honest. Sorry, Morgan. So not honest. Like I was like asking for a friend, but Loki, of course the friend was me. And I reached out to Eric because she was like, I went through this amazing program. It's called the creator Institute. Here's the guy's information, pass it on to your friend. And I, um, kept the information for myself because I am the friend. And I reached out to Eric and literally within 30 minutes, he emails me back. And within a week, we're on a Zoom call. And he was like, absolutely, this is a great story. Um, I think that you would be a great fit. And there is a, um, a new cohort that's starting in January and this was December something. And I was like, fantastic. And it literally started two weeks after me laying on the floor begging this man, right? So I didn't know, like, how do you tell a story? Like, I'm all broken. But the great thing is, is the program just literally takes you, they, they, they're like, here, honey, give me your hand. And then they just slowly take you through each step of the process. So when it came time, I tell all of my stories in like five minutes. So you asked about the cover. So <laughs> here you go. I'd like to hear it. Here you go. So when it came to the cover, they pair you with their graphic artist and you have these discovery call. You have a discovery call and then you have another discovery call. And the second one, you're actually looking at the graphic artist's um, computer, right? He's sharing his screen, mm -hmm. right? Because he's somewhere in another part of the world. And he's coming up with these concepts as you're talking mm -hmm. about your book and the things and you filled out this very detailed um, worksheet. Only my worksheet said like questions one through six. What do you hope to get? Like, what is the message? What's the image? It literally said, I don't know, six different times. Because I literally did not have an idea. What is a cover supposed to look like? And at this point, I, I've written written the book. The book is already written, like, right? In your mind, you've done the work. I've done the work. Yeah. And I was like, if I knew what I wanted the image to be, I'd have been done told you that. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not a graphic artist. I don't know. And I felt very frustrated by the process. Mm. Sorry, Creator Institute. So I felt very, very frustrated because I didn't know. And I was like, you all are the professionals. That's what you do. Like, you need to tell me. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> so what he comes up with. One of your other guests said, <laughs> said like something like it was booty juice. Like it was insane. Called. God. Thank you for bringing her up. She, she called Brian Kemp straight booty juice. Straight. Straight. Yeah. Like unfiltered. Like undiluted. Concentrated. Concentrated. Like two times, like, you know, the laundry detergent, like two times, like d d we, we, we didn't dilute it. It's just straight booty juice. It was so, I was like, 
This is not an after school school special for the, those of you who are old enough to remember after school special. That is not what this is. Like, what is this bright, like, like aquamarine background with like the time trash? So I was like, what do I do? And so when I tell you I was exhausted, Nick Nelson told me, don't call him no more. Like literally asked me about the book cover one more goddamn time was his exact words. That sounds just like Nick. So I'm pretty sure he was on the verge of not answering my calls anymore. Um, Dr. Monica Beckham, shout out to her, and Dr. Sansa Curtis were my two besties who picked me up off of the floor when I shattered. They also had been super supportive. Don't fucking ask me about the book cover one more goddamn time. Like nobody wanted to hear it anymore because I didn't know what it what I wanted it to be. I kid you not, I am on a call. So I get an idea that the, my birth certificate, which I always found to be incredibly unique because it doesn't look like anybody else's. Everybody else's in my family is a white background with black printed words. I always found mine to be super unique, that it is a black background. The paper is black. The white is ink. The white is ink. The ink is white. Super unique. Never, I hadn't seen it because that's not what my family's birth certificates look like. And it's not what my kids' birth certificates look like. So I, I just thought like, what would that look like if we put the background as this birth certificate. And so they had asked me, the graphic artist at the um, at New Degree Press, the publishing company, had asked me to send them the pictures. And so I do, but again, it's straight booty juice. And I am on the phone with an a card reader, spiritual guide, like I'm like I'm reaching people. I'm reaching. I need help. I literally am on a Zoom call with her. And she says, I, I show her, maybe I sent her a text or something, um, like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. And she says, send it all to me. Send, send, send me it, because that is, you're absolutely right. That's straight trash. And she, no lie, texts me back a version of what you see, the final copy. Like, then the... Then the um, graphic artists now they're off to the races now they know because they have more direction they have the direction that i needed to go in and when you look at it um i so being a mom there's this thing that you are well i don't know maybe people aren't but like when you have a baby, people go, oh, that's such a beautiful baby. If in fact the baby's beautiful, but there are ugly babies. There are absolutely ugly babies. And like, they're perfect. They got 10 toes, 10 fingers, all the lung organs, like all the, but they're ugly, yeah. And so what I kept saying was that I, that I, I had created this work that I was super proud of but it was going to be an ugly baby mm. because the tra the cover was trash. And she came in and 
oh my God, it, it was absolutely amazing. And so then it became this beautiful cover and it was legit this old picture that I had seen a gazillion times over because all my family pictures look exactly the same. Like who's the chocolate drop? Who doesn't fit? And it's a picture of me and my sister and my cousins. And I am the little it's a brown great, girl. It's a great cover. Yeah. Yeah. They did it. They did an amazing job. They really did. No, you know, shout out to them. It was hell for you. And, and I'm sure it was even more hell for them, but they did an amazing, amazing cover. Um, and like I said, it's a very provocative cover, right? Um, but yeah. So let me ask you, uh, how's your sister? So I don't actually know. Um, I actually stopped claiming her. Um, I don't know. She has chosen, she chose uh, to be estranged from our family. The things that I uh, spoke earlier about uh, her life choices, um, or rather that she showed up and she had work to do. I think that ultimately for, uh, for Michelle, that she, that she might leave here with ha not having worked them out. Um, and she made some really poor choices in her life. And then she kept making even more poor choices. And then she decided that she didn't, she didn't want to have any contact um, with the family. And what I felt is, right, because she did it repeatedly through my young adult life. And every time she would leave, there was a peace. Because it, I, it, while I was her target early on, right, she then expanded that sort of anger and it and it became more diffuse and um and it touched more of more family members and and she when she is present there's a chaos and there is havoc and there um there's just, there's a lot of confusion. Like she, she's sort of like the, the, like the, what is it? Um, the devil, the Tans Tasmanian devil mm. where he just like creates all of this, like dust and, mm -hmm. and like all the like madness around him. And then like, he runs away and like everybody else is, is left. left with the mess. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and that's a lot of what she was creating. And so she would leave for long periods, like years. And it would, be peaceful. And then she'd come back. And as soon as she'd show back up, it would just be these really ridiculous things. And, um, and the chaos would ensue. And so, um, so I don't actually know where she's at today. Uh, I wish her well, the last time that she showed up is uh, right after um, my dad passed. And um, and to be clear, his stepfather, um, but he did the job. I write about him um, in my book. He is probably the greatest human being that I've ever met um, and loved him tremendously. And he tried to show up and be, you know, a father figure to her as well. Uh, she just was not as open to it. Um, she did love him though. And so she shows up, uh, for his funeral and my mom is sick. And, uh, for the next two months that she's around, she creates no 
less than her normal chaos and havoc and um and then she once it's all stirred up and you know family feuds and all the good things she rides off into the sunset and that's been 10 years ago so we wish her well we don't know yeah sounds like a provocateur yes yeah and she's professional yeah so you you bring up your your stepdad i should have asked you this earlier on who protected you so Michelle was really, really good, um, and she would never let the adults know. Um, like she was not, uh, she was not the like out in the open bullying. She would do it very secretively, and um, and her malice, you know, is what taught me her the secrecy around you know, sort of her malice, and she would hide it. Is what taught me about shame and about how shame lives in the dark. And it wasn't until I went to therapy and I realized that once you shine a line and once you dig all of the dirt out from underneath the rug and you shine a line at like shame no longer has power over yeah. you. And I didn't realize that because that's what people who are, um, using intimidating, you know, influence over you mm -hmm. that's you know that's sort of how that they amass their their power mm -hmm. so to speak and and i didn't realize um i didn't realize that but yeah she uh she was very secretive and and you know to her credit i don't even know if that's that's the the most accurate way to 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 phrase that but i never told anybody mm -hmm. i did not um i didn't share the verbal abuse the emotional abuse the the physical abuse like i i just didn't um i i think that i assumed at a young age that it was obvious um and i was wrong right like there were people that just even after i wrote the book they were family members that were like wow i'm really sorry i i, I just no didn't idea. know right and 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 i didn't share and i think that that's also the learned behavior that we talked a little bit about yeah. before um because certainly my 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 mother and when she remarried um you know my stepfather loved me tremendously and they would not have stood for the abuse yeah. they 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 would not have but you know when you keep things secret mm -hmm. i think that it's almost as if you you give permission to the abuser mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. like you allow you and sort of embolden them mm -hmm. to continue the behaviors because they think that they are you know above reproach they um my sister i don't think she was God, she was so sneaky. Um, and and I think that she also thrived in that she would do things, but she knew that people weren't watching, sort of. So, um, you know, you learn. She knew how to play how to play the game. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, it's obvious, right? Shame thrives in secrecy. Because it's it's until it's brought to light, it's not it's not shameful. It's between you and I, yep. and when it's brought to light, that that is its power, right? Darkness. Let me ask you about your father, your biological father. Have you met him? So, um, 
The short answer would be no. Mm-hmm. The longer detailed um, answer, and this is the first time I'm actually ever talking about this part, which is super, um, super cool, that there was a moment my mother met him through my grandparents um, managing a motel and he was a musician and he had ironically as it is so my grandparents were like super racist but my grandfather was like just he loved to talk he just loved 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 to talk like he would just talk to anybody and everybody and he had befriended this man and he was also unaware i'm i'm sort of rolling my eyes like mm-hmm. how unaware can you be like when you look at me but he was also unaware that my mother had a relationship and so shortly after my mom had left my brother's father. We now live with my grandparents in Southern California and where my mother had met him. And one night there's a knock at the door and my grandfather had gone, gotten up. My It was me, my mom and my grandfather. They were all sitting in, in the living room. There's a knock at the door and my grandfather goes to the restroom. My mother answers the door and it's him. My grandfather comes out of the, uh, out down from the hall. We're all sitting in the living room on the couch. I don't, I don't have a memory of this. Um, my mom is holding me. So we're going to call this I I lied, I lied, I lied, I lied. It is not after my mother leaves him. My mother and us three kids are um, visiting her parents, my grandparents. She is still married to my brother's father and um, it's not a good situation. And so my mom is taking some time, visiting her family, taking some time. She never told this to me, but I really think that she was trying to get up the courage to leave this man. And so we're now all, all three sitting in the living room and I'm on her lap. So when she finally leaves my brother's father, I am six. So this is probably when I am maybe three, four years old. I'm sitting on her lap and my grandfather is talking and the biological father looks at my mom, nods towards me, and shrugs his shoulders. And my mom nods her head, yes. And that was it. My grandfather keeps talking because there is there is no space for which my mother at in her life at that time would have ever said that she had a relationship with this man. So this is 1974 and she knows who her family is. So she knows the time she lives in. She knows who her family is. My grandfather stays there the entire time, the rest of the visit. And then this man walks out the door and my mother 
never hears from him again. And now this is a time pre-ancestry.com. This is a pre-cell phone. This is a pre-Facebook. This is this is 1973-74. This, this is not a time for which that we're all connected. It's pre at all, right? Yeah. And and you recall this, you recall you don't recall it. No, I so don't. So who, who, who reminded you of that? So my mother actually told me, I am now 19 going on 20 and now I'm asking. So the lie is revealed when I am 18. Tell, you gotta, don't skip it. Don't skip it. That was going to be my next question, like that day. Yeah. Yes. So... I am, my, my mother was impassioned by doing better by her family. Financially, she wanted to give better. So when we were, when us kids were very little and she was married to her first husband, we lived on a farm and we lived off of the land, but we lived and we lived in this itty bitty town, 322 people. Um, we lived off of the land, not because there was an abundance and a surplus. It was necessary. We lived off of the land because, uh, we were extremely poor. Um, and us kids would have never known that we, my mother did amazing things. And so we, we did not, as far as we knew, want for things. My mother, however, um, would tell me later that she would go hungry so that her kids would eat. Um, and so I, I, I had this, you know, this reverence, you know, for this woman. And I spent a tremendous amount of time self-appointed protector of my mother because she was in a very unhealthy relationship. And so my earliest memories are of this, you know, very unhealthy relationship. And so as the years went on long after she left, you know, the man, um, I, continued, you know, that sort of role that I played in, in my mom's life. And so I, uh, we live in a very small town now, my mom, um, and stepfather now are, you know, doing a little bit better. And so they've, they wanted to get out of the rat race. And so we moved from Southern California to this little itty bitty town, um, in Arizona where there is zero diversity. And it is as if the town takes pride in the fact that there is zero diversity. And here we show up and I, you know, sometimes you, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. What did my mom think? Like she was going to show up with, and because everybody in Southern California had not been saying the truth, had not been naming the elephant in the middle of the the room that she was going to go to this little tiny town that had nothing but white folks and nobody was going to say, I, I honestly, I can't tell you what she was thinking. I don't know. I can't have a conversation with her. So devil's advocate, it could be that prior to it was never brought up so she'd kind of been trained if i don't say anything if you don't say anything no one's gonna know none's the wiser yes and she also didn't know the relationship that the dynamics between you and michelle right yeah so she probably felt also within her family that no one had there was no she was doing a fantastic job yes so for her moving to a new place 
who would? Right. Yeah. Right. So she was just keeping it up. Poor thing. Yeah. So I go to the high school and um, I get threatened by um, some of the high school boys. Uh, three of them corner me in the cafeteria and they... Um, so the guys, the high school kids, it, this is desert. So I need you all to imagine like desert, like sand. There, there's cacti and sand. There's this little tiny town. And then, you know, literally hundreds of miles all around this town with just nothing but sand and cacti. And so the high school kids would go out way far into the desert and they would create these bonfires. And they would, you know, drink and do whatever stupid things high school students do. And I, of course, was never invited. And I get cornered one day in the cafeteria. I've probably been there for maybe about two months. But I try my hardest not to go to class, like to go to school. Because I I know what it feels like to be a new student, right? Like I went to five elementary schools, middle school, three high schools. Like we moved a lot. My mother was forever in pursuit of doing better um, by her family. And so we moved a lot. And so here we are in this town and I don't want to be in the school and I'm miserable. It's my senior year. I hate everybody. And I'm there one day. It's lunch. Three of these um, high school boys corner me in the cafeteria and they threaten to take me out to where they, you know, go and do their bonfire things. And they're going to lynch me. Only I don't know what lynching means. I grew up in an all white family, all white schools, um, a complete whitewashed history. So I legit do not know what lynching means. I know that it's bad, but I don't know what it, I don't, I don't know what that means. And I go home and I am terrified and I don't want to go back to school, but I don't know what to do. And I don't have anybody that I can talk to. So ironically, the person that I call is my sister. She no longer lives at home. She hasn't lived at home for years now. And um, because I'm nearly 18, and remember, she's seven years older than me. And so I call her, and my sister is extremely silver-tongued. Like, she has such a sharp, lethal um, tongue that she will choose the most deadly of words. Um, and she says nothing when I say, why are these boys saying this to me? Why do they hate me so much? What does this word mean? She says nothing. And the very first thing that I ask her when she answers the phone is, please don't tell mom. Don't tell mom. Because I am my mother's self-appointed protector. I cannot protect her if she knows about this. And I don't want her to know about this. The following afternoon, I don't go to school. I feign some sickness and I get summoned to my mother's room. And I watch my mom do these like just emotional like she's just sitting there and you can see the anguish and I can't imagine what like is the problem my mom and I are really good friends and I so I don't understand like why she can't have this conversation or she can't tell me whatever the reason why she called me into her room and then I think that bitch I told her not to say anything clearly Michelle has told mom and now she's all upset Right. And then she says the thing that I 
do not see coming. And that's my brother's father's name is Jim. Jim is on my birth certificate. She says, Jim is not your father. And I'm like, what the hell? Now, I could have told you, as I mentioned before, I know that I don't look like none of y'all. But when I asked when I was five, when I asked when I was seven, when I asked when I was nine, and the answer is always the same. It's like, oh, I, don't, I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I have no idea. But yeah, this is, this is your father. I'm your mother. And now you're telling me that he's not my father. And I don't, I don't know how to put all those pieces together. I don't know how to show up in the world. I don't know what that, what that means. And I certainly don't know how to respond and react. And how do I go forward? Because my father's a black man. Like, what does that mean? Like, I know my family's racist. What does that mean? Does that mean that they're not going to love me? Does that mean that I'm going to, you know, be the pariah? Like, I, I, I only had questions. I didn't have any answers. And that was, that was not a, it was not a good day. Wow. Well, again, I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, it just introduced more colors right and it's like how do these how do these colors fit within my idea of who i am and my idea of what you love about me so just like you said am i now gonna be a pariah because now i know and i'm sure a part of you felt like who else knows and hasn't been forthcoming with me because just like you said you said I was a self-appointed protector. So how can you protect someone when you don't feel safe? Yeah. And the interesting thing is, in you know, I think whenever we have what my coaches, coach likes to call high courage conversations, mm-hmm. whenever we have these really difficult, you know, confrontations and we need to have you know, to delve into something deep and Mm -hmm. potentially painful is, you know, our mind, mind does this sort of molasses thing where everything slows down. And in the slowing down process, you, you know, you start turning things inside out and start around and then looking at them from different perspectives that maybe you hadn't considered Mm -hmm. before. Your vantage point changes. And it's so fluid. Absolutely. Yeah. And it became this, those really great movie moments where the camera spins around and you get this 360 degree view of the same thing. Yeah. So character, main character, center stage. And now you can see this, you know, character from all the different um perspectives and what I felt like in that moment was all the people all the times and I write about this in the book because what I hear as the grandfather clock is um, is chiming down the hall for every chime as you know this sort of time sort of seems to be very um, slow and you know elusive that all that my sister used to say, like, you're dirty, your skin is dirty, you're never going to be clean, 
Nobody loves you. We're going to leave you in the middle of the night. You'll see. Nobody loves you. And and hearing, so I'm uh, nearly 18, and my sister has moved out, gosh, five five years before. So it had been like years. It's not like I, when I was 15, she was still saying those things, but it had been years since I'd heard my sister say that. And they all just started echoing in my brain. And so every time an echo happened, I thought about another instance, right? Of it, you know, in my life where my uncle's trying to pick me up from school, only the lady doesn't believe that he's a relative. And because um, I was sick and the school nurse won't send me home. Or, you know, the moment where we're um, standing to get our family photo taken and there's like, God, it's an Italian family member. So there's like, you know, all the six kids and all their kids and, you know, cousins. And and so this really great, this huge group photo. And I run to go to the restroom. I'm probably, I think I'm like five or six. Um, no, probably, yeah, six. And I leave, I run to the restroom and now I'm coming back and I'm trying to go into the studio. Only the photographer won't let me in because she doesn't believe I belong to that family. She's like, no, 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 You have to wait. Your family's coming up next. What she meant was the black family that's coming up. But I didn't know who she was referring to. I didn't see another family. I just knew that my family at six years old is inside that room and I'm, I'm standing on the outside. And what do you mean? That's not my family, right? And then, you know, somebody comes out and goes, no, 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 come on in, right? And, and, and so as quickly as those moments sort of, you know, arise, there's always somebody that would be like, no, 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 I'm her uncle. I'm her, her, her mom's brother. Like to validate your identity. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 don't, don't, don't worry about that. Um, and, and so that, now the moment is like, there's no denying it. Like this woman who's in front of me telling me that my entire life has been a lie. Like you, the whole, and how do I protect you when you're the one who is the creator? You're the author of this lie. And, and it took me a long time to figure out how to how to be in a space that I could love and appreciate her in spite of this thing that felt very hurtful at the time. Yeah. Let's take a break. General Hospital, brought to you by Zest Deodorant Bar. You're not fully clean unless you're zestfully clean. Soap leaves a sticky film on you, but Zest is not soap. So Zest rinses clean away. Leaves no sticky film like soap does. Zest fully, Zest fully, Zest fully clean. You're not fully clean unless you're Zest fully clean. Naima, there's just so, like, first of all, thank you for sharing the day that you met your father. I know that wasn't easy. Um, and then also, I think what we realized is that while you were protecting your mom, she was protecting you, but she just could not account for those three guys. Yep. 
Absolutely. The thing that I know... Um, so my oldest, who is now 27, y'all, is 27. And we, my husband um, and I decided that we wanted to uh, embrace an entire continent, right? We had met um, studying uh, African history and antiquity and, and really wanted to raise our very our family um, in an Afrocentric way. And so we decided that we were going to do a naming ceremony. And um, and we did his on the 7th. And I write about it in the book. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful experience. I had not realized that the degree to which that my mother had spent protecting me was born in 1971. And while we think like, oh, that's, you know, a time for which that, you know, we were coming out of all things bigotry and, and racism was sort of this thing that didn't exist. That the lies that was, it was just revving up. And it was certainly showing its very ugly face and, and, um, and, and in very invasive ways in families and the mindsets that were around um, this idea and this social construct of, of race and, and how then we see one another. And my mother actually uh, spent a good part of her formative growing up years in Detroit. And so she has moments um, of experience where she was the only white kid in a classroom. So it wasn't as if that my mother did not understand, because I had bad hair years, y'all, bad hair years. So it wasn't as if my mom didn't understand what it meant um, to be different and be black, because she certainly experienced it. I don't think that she ever imagined she would have a black child. And she had no way of protecting me in her mind, other than to deny the thing that was right in front of everybody. And so if she continued with the story of denial, that she would not have to account for it because nobody could prove it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was no such thing as Ancestry.com, mm -hmm. right? Like, And she was not willing to risk my safety and what she felt like would have been somehow threatened mm -hmm. in the environment for which that we lived. Mm -hmm. And I think that while her first husband was a horrible human being, to his credit, they never once had a conversation about me. Meaning that he was just an equal opportunity bastard. Like, he was awful to everybody, me included. Um, and so... She, I think, also developed maybe just this sort of idea around maybe being bolstered by the fact that if nobody was talking to her about it, that it actually was not happening. And for the times that I think I asked her and questioned it, I think that what she believed is that she was doing the best that she could to protect me in those environments. And the the day that we did the naming ceremony for Kamau was the day that I fully understood that there wasn't anything that I wouldn't have been willing to do to protect him. 
And I knew in that moment that my mother had felt the same way about me and that there was there was no denying that. Like my mother loved being a mother and she did the best that she could with what she knew at the time that she knew it. And this was a secret that she literally told no one and that she lived with for almost 18 years. And I can't even imagine Mm -hmm. what that would be like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. The human story. Yes. And that you have to have compassion and empathy. And while like at 18, when she told me, I felt very angry. I think that what helped was my own life experience. Like you have to go out and have some experiences so that you can give some context and provide some empathy for other people's lived experiences. I didn't live in 1945 with my mother or 54 with her. Like I didn't, I didn't have her lived experiences. I didn't know what that meant to walk or in her shoes. And yet I was so willing in that moment at 18 to judge her for decisions that she had made because it affected me. Right. And and you didn't you didn't have enough tools, right? Yes. You know, it's 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 not funny, but it's funny. Parents are who parents are to their children is not who the same parents when they become grandparents are to their grandkids. Right. So she's she's protecting you against her parents, who as you stated were were true racist. But her but your grandparents, your experience with them you probably probably didn't feel that at all. No. Yeah. No. And how crazy is that, right? Yeah. Like there was nothing for me to hear a racial slur f- flying around, you know, my grandparents' home and while my mother would never utter those words like her siblings did, you know, her her parents did, and yet every single one of those people loved me. Yeah. And I I think that it's so interesting, which is why ultimately that I told my story, because it is not this one dimensional story. It is not just as simple to say that, you know, I lived some tragic life because here's the truth. I didn't. I had some really unfortunate experiences and I had some pretty fucking amazing experiences all in the same lifetime. I think like all of us, right? Like it the emotional uh, exposure sort of span the the diaspora as I think with any of us, if you live long enough, oh, yes. you get to meet yourself in all of these different people. Yes. And it gives you the opportunity. I think if, if nothing else, what writing the book, the process gave me was an ability to love and appreciate people even more because at the end of the day, What I know is what I gained from telling my story was hearing other people's stories and their walks and their lived experiences. And it just deepened my own ability to have greater and greater compassion for others. What's up with your brother? What's he up to? Oh, my gosh. So I absolutely love and adore my brother. Um, Shout out to William. He is... He's such an incredible human being. He is so different from me. And I love and adore him. He's four years younger than me. And I spent my adult life apologizing to him 
because I was a really shitty younger um, version of myself. I was, I did not look at what my sister was doing to me and then be a better sister. I was not. I, I just wasn't. I was very dismissive of my brother. And if I'm completely 100% honest, I think it was jealousy. It was jealousy for something that he could never even imagine. And that was simply that he looked like everybody else. And I didn't. And I wanted what he had. Um, and I just, I, I wasn't kind as a young person. And then um, probably somewhere around when I got in high school, I started being a much better sister, but certainly in college and then older. And then I had to go on like a forever apology tour, like to the point, like when I think about him, like tears well up in my eyes when I think about how much that I love him and what incredibly sweet little brother he was and how trashy that I was to him during those years. And I wish that I could go back and undo that. If, if there, I don't have many regrets in my life, but that is certainly one of them. I wish that I could go back and be a better sister because he deserved to have a better sister. And we are, we're, we're pretty close now. He's, He's an incredible human being. We are we are so very different. We we don't agree on many things, but um, but I know that he is just a, a huge support um, and a cheerleader for me. So he was at the book launch, and remember, this is a blonde haired, blue haired, blonde haired, blue eyed. Um, I was about to call him a kid. He's definitely forty six. Um, but he's at my book launch and, uh, him and his wife, Misty are there, blonde haired. I, I don't know if her eyes are blue. Um, love Misty. She made some of the food. Thanks, Misty. Um, and they just are like there and they're maybe one, three white people at the book launch and they're just, they're gracious about it. Like he was a huge, you know, support and, and I appreciate that. But like he low-key lives on a farm now like he was born in. He lives in Kentucky on 60 acres. Like he's doing the whole thing. Like the goats and the milk and the eggs. And like when he came, they, they brought dozens of eggs. Like she makes deodorant and soap and like all like the super badass stuff. And I love that for him because yeah. he's like, all he wants to do is live off of the grid. Yeah. So. Yes, super cool human being. Shout out to William, William. and Mitzi. Yes. So let's let's get into what's the name on your birth certificate? The name on my birth certificate is the name that's in the book. Um, do you know? Okay, so I will say this. So you asked me earlier about like what was the cost and what did it mean? Um, this is what I heard. What did it what what did it mean to then reveal? secrets mm -hmm. and things that I like just what did it mean and what I heard was what did it mean for this persona that I have been operating in the mm -hmm. world as mm -hmm. um and for the most part um and I write about this, like I show up in the world as a black woman, mm -hmm. not as a mixed race woman, not as a biracial woman, but as a black woman and like low key, like president of the dark skin club. Like I think I am much darker than I am. 
um, my very, very best friend. Um, shout out to you, Nicole. Absolutely love and adore her. She is very chocolatey. And I am always like, I don't, I don't understand like what's, what's that? I mean, she was like, you do realize like you are real, real light. And I was like, but I'm not. So let's, let's introduce your complexion to the audience. Um, If you were in Jenny's ice cream shop. (laughs) So, so what's your flavor? And I want you to be honest because because God listens to the show. So what's your flavor? <laughs> All right. So perception is everything, people. Perception is everything. Fine. I'm literally looking at my arm right now. It might be caramel. You might be. Like, so, I see dark mocha. Okay. Just so, so you know. That ain't what I see. That ain't what I see. <laughs> I would say you're more, cl- you're closer to coffee. Be nice. Like coffee ice cream, right? <laughs> like coffee ice cream mixed with a bit of milk. Highly diluted like with actually, a lot of milk. Highly with a lot of milk and like, like heavy that, cream. Like the like the full fat, like on my brother's farm yes, milk. That, Is that what we're talking you're about? You're that guy. And I, I definitely see mocha, just so you know. I need you all. I need all 100,000 of your listeners to know that it's, I see something Every different. Every last one of them. Every last one of y'all. Go spread the word. Please spread the word. So give us the story behind, and I'll tell you why I'm asking, because you know a lot of people are going to say, wait, wait a minute. How were you raised a lie? Mm. And your name is Naima with two E's. With two whole E's. To a whole ease. Olatunji. Right. Oh, so it's like, the did the Tunji. name not give it away? The clue is in the name. But clearly, yeah. that's not that's yeah. not it. That's not it. And and you read, like, the very first chapter. You're like, what the? What? what? Who's Grace? And then who the hell is Grace? Who the hell and, is and, Grace? And, and why? Because I started defending you. I was like, the girl knows her name. <laughs> the girl. The teacher was like, that's not your name. And no, no, no. The, ma'am. See? Yeah. And an instant you go to white folk. Yeah, but yeah. that wasn't the case because you, you really thought your name was Grace. I really thought my name was Grace. And I was y'all, defending you like crazy in my head. Yeah. Until your was mom was like, yeah. Tragic. <laughs> to this day, I have scars on my leg. Like literally I have holes in my jeans. Yeah. Holes in my jeans. And there is a scar on my leg that I'm looking at because I ran into a wall like three days ago. I don't know how it happens. Oh. I don't have a coordinated, organized bone in my body. Love yeah, to mama dance. Mama was so right. She Love to dance. So right. I, I can actually get down a little bit, but I could. But I, so here's in my defense. This is because I think my There's mom no listened to Motown. There's no defense of this. There's no, for the record, um, if you've gotten through the first chapter, <laughs> there's just no defense of it for all of us, all of your readers who were defending Grace. Because white folks just won't get your name right. Right. I want to apologize to that to that teacher because yep. she was right. Yep. I want to apologize to Grace because you really you heard it so much you thought you were. Yep. And I want to give a shout out to your mama for setting a record straight. Listen, yes. Grace is a joke. Okay. Grace it's because you are not graceful at yeah. all. I mean, how how big of an asshole do your family have to be <laughs> to nickname you sarcasm? Like that's just that's so wrong on so many levels. But then you believed it. I a hundred percent believed it. I and you were pouting. It. Do you remember that day? Yeah. To when I tell you when I wrote that story, I so a lot of times when you write, I'm speaking like I'm a professional author, been doing it for decades. Um, a lot of times when you write. 
I wrote that. St- it takes a long time, right? Like yeah. iterations, whatever. I wrote that story in one sitting, and I wrote it in like less than forty-five minutes, because it is etched in my memory all the different just visual that what I heard, what I. It, it was so jarring to me. Like the hell you mean that that is not my name? Like I, I just I didn't have written. My family was they're special, so I was given my grandmother's name and you and you have to read the book because that's not the name that I ended up with um and I think I think I did um a a good job of sort of recounting Mm -hmm. the story of how I came to the name that I now possess and um carry around um and all legal documents and we don't have to go, but but I do want I do want listeners to know that don't ask yourself. Wait, if this is her name, she couldn't put two and two together because that's not it, no. right? No, yeah, perfect. Yeah, that that that's not a hundred percent. And so the and so the last name is you know it's a married last name. And so you know when when like the appearance of things is not always um what it actually is so yes no i there's there's no lie in the name yeah there's no it's it's definitely chosen um let's go back to ancestry have you have you used or leveraged a system or a platform like ancestry to kind of find out what's going on with your with your dad's side your biological father's side such a great question the answer is no Mm -hmm. and as we speak, there is a little kit under the under the bed, under the bed in my bedroom. Um, that is whatever mm-hmm. the thing you're supposed to do for the swab. Yes, mm-hmm. and it's been sitting there for two two years, three years. It was given as a gift, and I found it perplexing. Um, and it's it's literally hasn't even been opened. And so, and this is the reason why I believe that it is, it's not a a path that I'm pursuing. When my mother got remarried and Art became our father, I was third grade and this man did the job and he did it in a way for which there was never a moment for which that he wanted to abdicate his responsibilities, that he was not in full understanding and acceptance that my mother came as a package with three children. So what he became was a husband and a father in one I do. And he was the best example of a father and as a man of anybody that I know. So once he was in my life, there was never this moment for which that I felt I was missing out on something, that I had some void that I needed to fill. Now, this man didn't look like me either. And he loved us so immensely that I was not looking for something that I didn't feel that I had. Now, there was a moment for which that I did 
that I was very curious and I really did want to know. So was I 23? 21 was the first time that I asked my mom and then like Loki, like all of a sudden the story changed and like the name that she had said was like now, well, because he's a musician, you know, everybody was changing their name then that probably wasn't even his real name. You know, when she said that she knew where he was from now, all of a sudden she doesn't know where he's from. Like, and I, I left the conversation pretty well shut down. Like, what? Mm-hmm. And then when I was 23 and Kamal was born, I was like, I really, really do. Like, I, I want to know. Then all of a sudden the story became even more obscure. Mm. And then all of a sudden we know even less. And I was like, what is happening? So I'm going to say that I think that my mother had fear around what that would look like and what that would mean if I actually pursued this ma'am. And when I was given the gift two, three years ago, I, I don't think that I necessarily saw that as an opportunity to find him, right? Because there's so many other aspects to knowing your ancestry and whatnot. I just didn't feel led to or called to pursue Mm -hmm. it. And so I don't know. I almost thought that after I finished the book that I would want to. And there is still nothing. There's no desire um, to do any research. I have this intuitive sense that he's no longer living. But I do know that there are siblings out there. Um, so maybe on a responsible level, cause you know, I'm no longer a married person. <laughs> like maybe I should find that information out. But outside of that, there is no, there's no enticement for me. Yeah. I feel like, I don't know. I, I, I honestly, I can't see it there. There's still this, this thing that just feels a little bit ambiguous to me i don't i don't have a a dog in the race either way yeah wow that's i appreciate that because you know most people would say absolutely now that you have these tools at your disposal um access points um i think i share with some people that you know my father is so excited about ancestry like he traces all the way back to our mat to our slave masters and i was like yeah i'm good he was like yeah you know they're still in arkansas good to know wow. yeah and and the the young lady that he contacted it's her family and you know i think there's um it opens up the opportunity to have this conversation that's no longer in secret because slavery is not secret right ownership mm-hmm. of people was not secret so it just excites my dad and then i know other people who were staying away from ancestry because they're finding out they have little people out there <laughs> that's another conversation yeah that's a whole side yeah. of facts <laughs> so let me ask you you released the book what was the family feedback? I could not have written this book 10 years ago when my mother was alive. Um, I I think that I did a, a, a really good job at making sure that I honored her in the book. But I would not have been in the space for which that I could tell this story because 
while it's my story, it is so very much her story. And maybe there was a part of me that felt like I didn't have the right to tell her story. Um, and so when I went on this journey, both my mother, my stepfather, my grandparents, you know, some other family members, they're all deceased. So anybody that I felt like I would be harming in some way, cause any discomfort to people who have played a very um, impactful role in raising me were no longer here. Mm -hmm. And it gave me the freedom, if you will, to just tell the story without this concern around hurting somebody else by sharing my story and telling my story. Um, I know that if my parents were still living, I probably still wouldn't have written the book. But maybe like if my grandparents or somebody else that was less, that would have been less um, impacted by me telling my story, maybe I still would have. Um, but it feels freeing um, that I don't have to have those conversations. I don't have to justify um, and then, I mean, here's the other part, like part of the book is me telling my mom's story. So I, I had to do a little bit of digging and, you know, talk to some, you know, family members. And then I had to take some liberties because there are some things. And I say in the book, my mother and I never had this conversation. So I'm going to, uh, I'm making some assumptions yeah, here. You're inferring. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and part of that is when she was pregnant with me, right? Like she had to have spent some time really, um, in angst about holy cow, right? Um, and, and as far as the, the rest of the family, I, again, my brother was super supportive. My, my sister's not in my life. I do have some other family members um, that were, you know, in support. They have not told me any feedback from the book. And I don't know if that's content or quality. So we're not asking. Um, I did have to have one conversation. So my cousin Tina makes uh, several appearances in the book. And I love and adore her. She is probably one of the closest people to me. And... I told a story in the book that does not shed a positive light on her. And it was an unfortunate incident. She probably didn't even remember it, but I never forgot it. Mm -hmm. And when I chose to put it in the book, I knew that her and I were going to have to have this conversation because she, of course, loves and adores me as I do her. And I knew that she would support the book mm -hmm. and she would buy the book. And so the night before the book launch, um, because we mailed the books as an indie author, I mailed themselves, I don't have people. So we mailed them ourselves. And so the night before a book launch, I call her and I say, hey, there's a story in the book that I, I want you to hear from me. I want to have a conversation with you directly about it, because if you have any questions, 
then, you know, I want us to talk about it because I love you. And it was important to tell it in the book, but I don't tell it to harm you. And when I shared the story with her, she immediately broke down in tears and it was just so remorseful and horrified at her own behavior and could not apologize enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was part of me that felt really crappy. Like I didn't want to a call her that because I had written the story in October. It's now April. Like, I don't, I don't want to have the story, like the conversation with her. And, and it was difficult to, to share that with her. And yet it was, it was necessary. And she did a thing in our conversation. She was very, uh, just apparent, um, overtly upset about it. But then she did a thing that may reminded me of all of the growing up years. And it was, she was so upset that she had to go, like she couldn't continue to have the conversation and, and she had to go and, and we got off of the phone. And I remember feeling growing up that if ever I brought up something that was uncomfortable, right? Because I was always the outside person. I was the always the one that was looking from the perspective of wanting to be, you know, included. I was always the one with the hair like a mop and just unruly and, you know, just these thick lips and, and why do you look like this and like all those things. And if ever I questioned somebody making a reference about that or where as teenagers we go someplace and it's always an all white, you know, place and I want to go someplace different. It was always this, now you're making me uncomfortable. What? So the only person that's allowed to be uncomfortable is me. The only person that it's acceptable to feel like an outsider is me. Like we can't ever, those roles can't ever be switched. You can't feel some discomfort. You, you, it's not your responsibility to figure out how to adapt and how to assimilate in some sort of, you know, an environment. That's always my job. Okay. Okay. And now my cousin says none of this to me in the conversation. It's just something that triggered the, oh. Something familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I appreciate you sharing your why now, because you covered both the family feedback and your why now. And what I gather is, you know, with the passing or the transition of your of your mother and, and art and other family members, it was you were now relinquished of your duties as security, right? You could finally stand down. Yeah, and I don't have to be a bouncer anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I just sincerely appreciate you sharing your story with the Small Talk Big Names podcast. Um, I've learned a lot. 
God, I hope, I hope that people have more questions. And, and, you know, it's the more we talk about it, I think the more that we're able to help others kind of start to take inventory of, of their feelings and their why. And why do I do things this way? You know, why do I feel this way? Why am I always treated this way when I walk into this room? Um, so I appreciate you for that. Thank you. Um, but, you know, with, with before we conclude, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor. This episode has been brought to you by 19 Crimes. Callie Red, Snoop Dogg himself. Listen, if you believe in Snoop D-O-double-G, then you understand where I'm coming from. This red is not, I use the word abusive. And I, what I really meant to say was it's not dry. <laughs> it is delicious. Yes, Cali Red. It's a Cali Red, 19 Crimes. Snoop Dogg, crime. I know you listen. Send, just send me a couple of cases. Yes. It's yes. delicious. You and Martha. Because you know they'd be hugged up on the 19th. I bet Martha had something to do with this. I bet she did. It's so sweet. Yeah. And, and and it's delicious. And I'm not drinking it down like it's water. Yes. And and so here's the thing that, that's lovely about how appropriate this is from a Southern California girl. Like, we had to represent. Yes. Snoop had to be in the house. I appreciate you. Yes. I really do. And thank you for yes. taking time to speak with us. Absolutely. And cheers. That wraps up another episode of Small Talk Big Names. On behalf of myself and the entire crew, thank you so much for listening and join us next week for another exciting episode of Small Talk Big Names with your host, Niger.